This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. So we're talking about consumer decision-making uh, with Liz Friedman, who's doing some very cool work. We're going to turn to that now. Uh, Liz, I want to, I was reading your JCR paper, uh, fantastic work. Congratulations, first off. Thank, thank you so much. Listeners, you have no idea how hard it is to publish. And there's a journal called the Journal of Consumer Research. It's almost impossible. Okay. It's like 90%, 99% rejection rate or something. Uh, but Liz has successfully published a very exciting paper that she's going to tell us a little bit about now. Talk to us about your work in this particular sure. paper. Sure. So to set up the context a little, um, a lot of situations that we as consumers may be familiar with involve kind of choosing between options. Mm -hmm. So think if you're buying a toaster, let's say, you think about choosing which model, which brand you would like. Um, And in that case, there's been a lot of work on the various comparisons that can happen, the trade-offs consumers make, Mm -hmm. and ultimately how they decide which ones they prefer. So one one aspect of this, just to build on what you're saying, Liz, is an absolutely interesting context here. Like one aspect could be like, okay, if I'm looking at two toasters and they're the same thing, and I might be looking, one thing that might happen, uh, which you and your colleagues might study or someone interested in, in the approach that you're using, is that let's look at how these, these two same things kind of differ on some attributes and then try to maybe make some trade-offs about which attributes are more or less important, right? So something like that could be like a starting point, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, So in my work, I'm focused on a slightly different situation where rather than making this choice between things like these two same toasters Mm -hmm. that differ on attributes, Mm -hmm. you're kind of more deciding, do I want something or not? And you're made aware of other ways to spend your money. They're not directly which of these, but should I buy this toaster given that I know about this shirt that I liked last week or a Mm. bill that I have to pay Mm -hmm. or even another toaster that I saw at a different store. Mm -hmm. So it's not this direct choice, but rather an awareness of other ways you can spend your money. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that's absolutely, I mean, there's no person on the planet that would argue that that doesn't happen, right? Because that's just a normal process of understanding. I have a fixed budget. Uh, in most cases, and I have a, a collection of things, you know, my my list of things that I want uh, and, and or need, and I'm just thinking about the, you know, anything that might trigger. I'm thinking about that list, and it just so happens that perhaps things on that list might be quite different in terms of their exactly. categories, right? Yeah, and right. So the traditional economics view is that people have this whole list in their head at all times, and they just know um if the thing they're looking at kind of falls high enough on that list to Mm -hmm, buy it. But of mm -hmm. course we know that that's not true in the real world. Um, And in fact, attention is quite limited. So um, the actual specific item that you're thinking about, you could just be thinking about that one shirt that you bought, Mm -hmm. or you could be thinking about that other toaster. Mm -hmm. Um, So this work, I I look at how that specific item that you can bring to mind Mm -hmm. can affect the decision of whether you not whether or not you choose to buy the original item. So uh, do I buy that initial toaster if mm-hmm. I think about another toaster versus if I think about a shirt this is something else? Uh, this is absolutely incredible, Liz. I, what I love about this is, is like the examples that you're giving are, are beautiful because they represent kind of reality, real world. 
mm-hmm. you know, you, you can absolutely think of situations where you're like, okay, I'm thinking about, you know, two shirts, for example. I'm trying to make a decision about, you know, getting an outfit that I'm going to wear for my McKinsey uh, consulting interview. You know, there it is, the two shirts. I'm probably not really thinking about, well, I could also buy this toaster, go to a dinner or go to the movie. You know, I'm focused. So yeah. my, my, my view is focused. You're there. focused. You're focused. Exactly. But there are lots exactly. of situations where, okay, no, no, I'm thinking, I just have some money here and I'm thinking about just what do I want to buy right now? I'm in a different kind of mode, right? right? And this is what you're essentially studying, right? This is what I'm studying. And it could be that I think about what else to buy or it could be that something in the marketing context Mm. um, makes me think about what else to buy. Very, very cool. So, And one example of that might be, Liz, like, I mean, just I'm just thinking about how I am when I'm on Amazon. And I'm like, and I I go there to buy something and there's a hundred other things. They're like, wait a second, I could get that. And, 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 you know, that, that would be something that a marketer did that would suddenly change my mental or my, how I'm seeing the context, which is according to your research might really, really change the the intent to which I want to buy that thing that I originally started wanting to buy in the first place. Right. Exactly. And that's exactly what we look at. Um, So you could be on that page for a toaster and there's that, you know, customers who also bought who bought this also bought or some other recommended product mm-hmm. from an ad like you said um and how does the specific product shown there affect whether they buy that toaster or not and um, what, what's very cool i'm sorry i'm just so excited about your no, research please, please i apologize it. but what's really beautiful is the second part of what's beautiful about this is that you can and your approach your research very clean. Like you can look at these things. I was reading your paper. There's like a hundred studies in your paper. It's absolutely funny. It's like study one A to one F. It's like, it's like, wow. Okay. 10 studies just to show you like, this is absolutely real. And here it is. Uh, but very clean kind of you, you are literally, you know, taking clinically analyzing causally what you said, you know, if this particular thing changes, suddenly this thing is dissimilar that I'm making in comparison to what I originally wanted to buy, it's not the same category. What happens to my intent with the target thing I wanted to buy, right? Exactly. So if I'm choosing between the two toasters or the toaster versus uh, going to uh, buying movie tickets or something like that, it's very, very different kinds of things. Give us your hypothesis. Yeah. So as you set up, we do look at whether that other item recommended is similar, mm-hmm. like another toaster, or from a totally different category, like movie tickets. Um, and... Whereas kind of the traditional choice literature would say, I just look at which one I choose more, which one I like more, and and I'll buy it if I like it more, and I won't if I don't. We actually find that rather than this comparative process, a goal-based process matters a lot more. Mm. Um, And so to explain what I mean there, uh, people buy things in order to achieve goals. So if you're buying that toaster, it's to make your bread nice and toasty, enjoy um, some nice warm food, perhaps. Mm-hmm, right. Uh, and because our attention is limited, um, and w- when we think about a goal, it becomes kind of the forefront of um, our attention span. Mm-hmm. If I'm thinking about my toaster goal, if I'm thinking about a toaster, a goal that it serves uh, kind of comes to mind mm-hmm. this toasty goal. And now at the <laughs> the uh, center of of my cognition, let's mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. Um, and work has shown that when a goal is at the center of your cognition, uh, it becomes more important to you. Ways to achieve it matter more mm-hmm. to you. Uh, mm-hmm. Motivation to spend money on it matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it actually, from a retail or marketing standpoint, 
becomes very important to maintain that goal activation when people are thinking about buying something. Mm-hmm. So, so my hypothesis and what I show is that if you present a very dissimilar alternative, so I'm thinking about buying that toaster and a movie ticket is shown, now I've introduced a second goal, mm. enjoying a night out of movies. Mm-hmm. And introducing a second goal kind of decreases this intention I was giving to that first goal. Mm, I see. And by inference then, Liz, the co- oh, this is really fascinating. The consequence of this would be that I probably want the toaster less, right? Exactly. Mm. Right. So if your goal gets diluted or mm. um, kind of put somewhere else, then um, then you are less likely to purchase it. You want that toaster less, you spend less money on it. If in contrast, I had shown you a toaster or panini maker or something that kind of goes more with this toasting goal, mm-hmm. now I'm still focused on it. So I still will uh, buy that original toaster relatively more than if I showed you some movie tickets. Gotcha. And it's because it's because you are in that what for whatever reason, whether it be an internal uh, factor, Liz, or some external mm-hmm. thing that's going on that the marketer has somehow affected, because goal dilution has been minimized, you are able to keep that goal center stage for the consumer and you're able to maximize their purchase funnel response in the context of intent to buy because of that. Exactly. Exactly. And this is kind of counter to other kind of you would think if I show you toaster A and then you see toaster B, toaster B can easily steal share from toaster A. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I showed you a movie ticket, mm. that's not really going to affect toaster A because it's not in the same kind of choice. Interesting. But I actually show the opposite that that movie ticket decreases toaster A more than toaster B would. Interesting. So it's it, in some sense, it's like there's a huge managerial insight here, which is to say fool's gold would say, oh, you know what? The, the movie ticket is not going to hurt me. It's safe. And you would be mm-hmm. dead wrong according to your research, right? Exactly. Wow. Exactly. And I think, um, yeah, goals is not something that certainly when I was a consultant was not something that ever came <laughs> up. But I... <laughs> I do think it's very important for marketers to consider and um, if we can kind of understand the psychology around goals a little better, it can help us guide, it can help guide us when, which products to recommend and at what point of this purchase funnel. Yeah, I think I think what's super interesting that's also I want to build on that point that you're making, Liz, is that because your research now has clinically dissected the importance (laughs) of goal focus and minimizing goal dilution on making sure consumers purchase intentions don't drop because they are being exposed to a diverse set of product domains in their thinking around consumer choices. That is a huge insight because now it says I I can do something about, you know, as a marketer, I can do something about trying to maintain goal salience, if you will, or goal goal activation, I think is the word that you use. Let me ask you this though, Liz, are there instances, and maybe you did this in the research because I was was reading through your hundred studies, which are awesome. uh, (laughs) And I only got to study 99. So you might've done this in the hundred study. Uh, But because the logic is very interesting in the sense that one could imagine, I guess, and let me ask if if you have an example of this, a a situation where you have two completely different product categories. I mean, they're wildly different, but they serve the same goal. And so I have looked into this a bit. Um, 
I don't have hard evidence, but I think that would be a fair prediction that if they serve the same goal, you're not going to dilute the goal. And that would be another kind of interesting way to kind of mitigate, because I think you, you have a study where you show what, you know, what will kind of turn this off. Tell us a little bit about that study. Right. So this whole theory of a dissimilar, of a dissimilar way of spending money, of the movie tickets decreasing the importance of toasting, <laughs> is that it can actually decrease the importance of toasting. Mm-hmm. But there are instances, say your toaster broke, Mm-hmm. And you really need a new one. Mm-hmm. So that goal becomes super important to you. Mm-hmm. When a goal is super important to you, you're more likely to protect it from things interfering. Interesting. Interesting. And so, so what, what, that, no, yeah. go ahead. So in, in, in some sense, what, what might happen in that context, two things that might happen, Liz, is fascinating with this research. Anything that will make the goal important, more important, is going to mitigate this, this dissimilarity um, uh, effect that you document so eloquently in your paper. Uh, but there's lots of different ways you can make that goal stand up and be more important, right? You can make that goal appear to be somehow more self-relevant to them. I'm interested in studying identity. So if you can make that right. goal very much identity relevant, then you're going to power up that the motivation to kind of stick to that goal and like sort of create this buffer, right? That would, at least in yeah. your, your theory would predict, be able to kind of hold off that goal dilution, that distraction from the alternative goal from the dissimilar product, right? Right. For sure. Any any method, and there are a number, I think identity relevance is a great one, but any method of um, building up that initial goal should help kind of defend against these potential goal dilution effects. Very, very cool stuff. What's What are you working on new? Just we have running up, we've got probably a minute left. <laughs> yeah, what are you working well, on new? I'm following up this work. I'm trying to also identify how the other stages in the purchase funnel might be affected by this goal-based process. Okay. So here we looked at when the goal is kind of active, but has but the consumer has not yet decided whether or not to buy. So it's kind of still in this active phase. What happens if they then add it to the cart? Um, oh, Amazon will also show. I see. Um, kind of once you've added to the cart, they'll show new products that you can continue shopping for. Wow. There, the goal-based account would predict that. You've experienced some goal completion, and now this goal can kind of deactivate. And at that point, actually switching your goal, introducing a new important goal to you, can be more effective than staying on that original goal. Wow. So, you, I mean, you're just going to systematically, like, walk through the process <laughs> and, like, break this down, like, CSI style, just, like, until we just, like, have an incredible roadmap to understand this very, very that's, interesting that's concept. That's one goal. That's one goal <laughs> of the research. <laughs> very, very cool. Liz Friedman, thank you so much for coming on our show tonight. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Mericus. It was a pleasure on my end as well. Excellent. Listeners, if you want to learn more about Liz and her research, you can go to yale.edu. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.